Good morning, Birdland. I'm Mark Brown. I've been blogging about the Orioles for more than a decade on CamdenChat.com and waiting for them to win the World Series for my whole life. Thanks for listening today. Let's talk some Orioles. It is now August the 23rd, 2023. The Orioles are 77-48 and 48 on the season after losing in 10 innings to the Toronto Blue Jays on Tuesday night by a 6-3 score. It was absolutely one of those frustrating games, especially the last couple of innings. The Orioles had the winning run on base with nobody out in a tie game at the bottom of the ninth inning. Jorge Mateo was unable to get down a sacrifice bunt to move Ryan McKenna over in the scoring position. McKenna did not uh, steal to get himself in the scoring position. Then once there was two outs, the Jays decided to intentionally walk Ryan Mountcastle, who was hitless at that point in the game, bringing up Gunnar Henderson to face their lefty reliever, Tim Meza. Gunnar Henderson was not able to make the Blue Jays pay on that occasion. And then in the top of the 10th inning, the Orioles brought on Mike Bauman to pitch even though Felix Bautista had gone through the top of the ninth inning in only nine pitches. To me, it really felt like overthinking at the time, and Mike Bauman certainly did not vindicate whatever thought process went into pulling Bauman because he gave up a first-pitch dinger to Brandon Belt and then gave up another run as the inning went along. I really don't get it, Uh, and as far as the bottom of the ninth inning, I think I would have rather seen... Anthony Santander pinch hit for Jorge Mateo instead of bringing uh, Mateo up to try and not succeed at bunting. I think if Santander was truly healthy enough to take some swings, it would have been better to see if he could crack one for extra bases. But nope, that's not what happened. So the Orioles ended up in the loss column. Combine that with the Tampa Bay Rays scoring nine runs in their eighth inning to beat the Colorado Rockies by a uh, 12-4 to score. The Rockies led that game 4-3 to going into the bottom of the eighth and lost it 12-4. to Pretty bad for the Orioles, also for the Rockies. And since the Orioles lost the game, they lost a game in the standings. Now a two-game lead in the American League East for the Orioles. They are still on pace to win 100 games. I'm sorry, I'm still taking the under, particularly because I have a bad feeling about this series remaining against the Toronto Blue Jays with the Rays lined up against the Rockies for the rest of the week. And then this weekend, it's the last place below 500 New York Yankees on tap for the Rays. The Yankees last night lost their ninth straight game. That's the first time that happened to that franchise since the 1982 season, which on one hand, That's a big ol' ha-ha like Nelson from The Simpsons. But on the other hand, that's really annoying that it's been more than 30 years since the Yankees have had that happen to them. So that streak's over for them. Too bad, so sad. You know, I've had the bad feeling plenty of times during the current Orioles not-swept streak that has lasted for the duration of Adley Rutschman's big league career plus one series before that. And the Orioles have dodged a lot of sweeps in that time. But the bad feeling is still there. You know, with Jack Flaherty pitching tonight for the Orioles, he's going to be facing off against Kevin Gossman. And the Blue Jays also have Jose Barrios lined up for Thursday's game. It just, uh, it doesn't make me feel better. But for now, that's enough about the on-field Orioles because what I'm going to go on to talk about now is the John Angelos problem, which is namely that 
He won't stop talking, even though every time he talks, it's bad. As you probably know, there was an Angelos, honestly kind of a puff piece, uh, published in the New York Times on Monday. It was weird. I honestly think it was really embarrassing for the New York Times to let a demonstrated liar offer his perspective on assorted issues he's previously lied about with little to no pushback apparent in the article. Um, Politely, you could call that article article I think obsequious and less politely you could say it was some real bootlicking honestly um how New York Times is going to treat wealthy fail sons is the New York Times problem the thing about it is John Angelos is Orioles fans problem and I'm not going to spend any more time on the particular details of that article and what was wrong with it by now that's old news that was two days ago but that article did get me thinking If I ever got the chance to ask questions of John Angelos, which I won't for a variety of reasons, what would I ask? And I suppose I would like to see if the Orioles beat writers or some other Baltimore-based reporter, um, maybe uh, a Baltimore business reporter at the Sun or the Baltimore Banner gets a chance to ask Angelos, I would hope they would ask some questions along these lines. So I've got a list of 10, and I would really like to have truthful answers to them. I don't think we will ever get truthful answers from John Angelos' mouth to very many, but nonetheless, here we go. Number one, in the 2017 season, the Orioles had a year-end 40-man roster payroll of $167 million. At the end of the 2022 season, this number was $60 million. Without counting 2020, there is a gap adding across those years amounting to roughly $330 million. On what have the Orioles spent this money? Provide an itemized accounting by department. If gate receipts or television revenue has declined, account for that. And as a follow-up, if these numbers don't add up to $330 million, what are your plans to invest the remaining money in the near-future Orioles payroll? Number two, an allegation made against you in the since-settled lawsuit filed by your brother is that you received multiple million dollars per year for an executive job at Masson. What is the total amount that you have received as salary or other financial compensation for Masson-related work? And follow-ups, in what years have you received this compensation? Have you ever received any salary or other financial compensation as an Orioles executive? In what years have you received compensation? What is the total amount you have received as an Orioles executive? Number three. The Orioles had the option to exercise a one-time five-year extension of their current lease, and they declined that option earlier this year. Why did you choose not to exercise this option? Number four, what are the demands that the Orioles have made of the Maryland Stadium Authority for a new lease that have not been agreed to? As a follow-up, what has the MSA asked of the Orioles that you have not agreed to? And what is the plan for 2024 if a lease is not agreed to prior to the end of the year? Number five, have you received any kind of settlement offer from MLB to induce the Orioles to allow Nationals television rights to revert away from Masson? As a follow-up, what were the terms of the most favorable offer the Orioles received, and when was this offer presented? Number six, In the recent New York Times article, you said internal processes led to the suspension of Masson broadcaster Kevin Brown. What exactly was the internal process that resulted in his discipline? And as a series of follow-ups, who is the person who was responsible for creating that process? Who is the highest executive, potentially including yourself, 
who was aware of the discipline before it occurred? Were you made aware of it before news reports of the suspension were published? What direction have you given to ensure your promise that this kind of thing will not happen again? And why should your promise be believed after you reneged on earlier public promises to show Orioles financial information? Number seven, it has also been reported that Orioles broadcasters are being required to wear team gear, which they have to purchase for themselves while they are on air, and that you are responsible for this directive. Are you responsible for this directive? As a follow-up, if not, who is? Will the broadcasters be reimbursed for these mandated purchases? Number eight, through what season does the current contract for general manager Mike Elias run? Number nine, what MLB payroll budget will be set for the 2024 season? As a follow-up, will there be an increase to ticket prices for 2024? If so, what percentage increase will uh, be going to those tickets? And number 10, is the Peter Angelos estate planning arranged such that the Angelos family will keep its majority stake in the Orioles after he passes away? As a follow-up, What circumstances would cause your family to decide to sell its stake in the team? Those are my questions. Again, uh, my suspicion is Angelos does not have any honest answers to give to any of these questions where he comes out looking good. So that's why anytime he talks and any vague topic um, comes near touching on any of these questions. And so what he ends up doing is maybe at best offering platitudes or promises that are not followed through. And at worst, he just kind of blusters and bloviates and threatens and just like says really weird stuff, like going back to, you know, January's uh, conference on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And he started lecturing uh, then athletic beat writer Dan Connolly for daring to ask Orioles business questions on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, even though uh, Orioles Public Relations had apparently told the reporters that they could come to the conference because it would be free to ask questions about, you know, the Orioles business. And still, that was what he did. He ended up looking like a giant weirdo at best. You know, uh, he honestly looked like a variety of words that I choose not to say on this podcast so I can keep uh, publishing it as a clean podcast. So... You know, since Angelos cannot apparently give honest answers where he looks good to any of these questions, again, I plead to him, just stop talking. Stop. That's all you have to do. Exercise your Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, which, of course, has nothing to do with talking about the Orioles. That's only to do with law enforcement, the court, whatever. Nonetheless, stop. Just have the right to remain silent and use it. That's all it takes. Let Mike Elias do his job, sign the lease, and stop talking. That's all. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor. All right, so digging into the mailbag today, we've actually got a couple today, and I'm going to start with one from listener Nava. And if I pronounce your name wrong, I'm sorry. Nava writes in and says, John Angelos is clearly not willing to give up any money signing Gunnar Henderson, Adley Rutschman, or uh, who in any other team would be locked down to a long-term contract by now. He doesn't care about winning and only cares about money for himself. He should sell the team, and if he does, how about Cal Ripken Jr. as a new owner? 
Nava, I will just say I'm not sure it's necessarily true that uh, either Gunnar Henderson or Adley Rutschman would be locked down by any other team by now. I think Henderson in particular is known to be a Scott Boris client who is extremely um, not likely to have his clients sign contract extensions before free agency and I believe has never had a client sign a contract extension before he at least hits his first year of arbitration. So, you know, I would like to see the Orioles do this, but I don't think that John Angelos is the reason it's not going to happen. I mean, he's not going to be part of the solution, but I don't think he's part of the problem either. But as far as Cal Ripken Jr., you know, people, I think, have been treating him as a possible savior for the Orioles in escalating roles for really two decades now, you know, in the earlier years, it was like, oh, Cal Ripken should be the manager, maybe in like 2007 or something, people wanted this. And then like, by the time it was 2011, maybe people wanted him to be the general manager. And now that we're a little bit beyond that, suddenly people are fixating on him like as the owner. And I just think of my friend and fellow Camden Chatter, Stacey Folkemer's take. And when it was manager at GM, she would always say, you know, do you want to get mad at Cal Ripken for putting in the wrong reliever? Or like, you know, tonight, pulling Felix Bautista after he'd only thrown nine pitches. No. Do you want to get mad at Cal for trading away the wrong prospect or signing a free agent who sucks? No, you don't want to be mad. He's Cal Ripken, right? We don't want to get mad at him for owner-level stuff either. So I think for that reason, no, we don't really want that. But anyway, I don't think Cal has buy the Orioles money. Um... In March of 2023, Forbes magazine estimate of the Orioles franchise value was $1.7 billion. I don't think he's got that kind of money. I don't think he has be the majority stakeholder, you know, 55% money either. Uh, if he was going to be the owner, it would probably be something like similar to the recent Derek Jeter status with the Miami Marlins, where it would be like Cal as the public face and a small stakeholder, but for somebody else's big money. And for the Marlins, that didn't last terribly long for Jeter after it seemed that the big money for which he was the face ultimately refused to spend when the time came to invest in the team to uh, sustain some kind of success. So, you know, for me, for, for these reasons, I don't really care about whether Cal Ripken is the owner or even a symbolic owner. I just want some kind of locally tied owner who will invest in the team. You know, if that's not going to be John Angelos, then yeah, John, get the heck out of here and sell to somebody after you sign the lease who is going to keep the team here and spend money on them. Um, that's that's what I want. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, of course, I mean, you know, when Peter Angelos bought the Orioles, he kind of had like the super group of uh, Baltimore connected successful business people who could pony up what was then like, uh, I think, $170 million ish to um buy the franchise. So they've increased in value 10 times roughly in the 30 years since. And I don't think the wealth of Baltimore connected businessmen have increased uh, 10 times since then. So, uh, you know, sketching together like a, a super team of new owners for the uh, the 2020s, uh, I, I mean, that's going to be tougher. I don't know. I, I don't know. But um, for now, I just want the lease to be signed and somebody to spend money on the Orioles to sustain their success. So Nava, thank you for writing in. And I've got another message today from listener Seth. And unfortunately, this is continuing more on the John Angelos theme. Seth writes, assume the worst about John Angelos. Let's assume that he does not extend any of the Orioles up and coming studs. 
So if that is the case, what does the Orioles' competitive window look like? And which season should the team try to max out to try and make a World Series run? And Seth, you know, this this topic has been on my mind really ever since the spring when Angelos um, made his remarks in spring training, the second time, I believe, where he promised to show financial information uh, at that time by the end of spring training, which, of course, he did not follow through on. And when he gave those remarks, he cited the Rays as well as the Guardians' models of sustaining success, which, I mean, one part of that model is Sometimes you trade players, whether they're superstars or even just quality regulars, if they get, quote unquote, too expensive in arbitration, like their um, their second or third years of arbitration, and you could convince yourself that maybe there's a cheaper prospect you can get in to take their place, which, I mean, I think the uh, really the Orioles, in a way, came through this themselves in 2014. It wasn't with arbitration guys. It was with free agents when they decided to not sign either Nelson Cruz or Nick Marcakis, uh, who became free agents after that 2014 season, telling themselves perhaps that they could replace those guys' production for cheaper. And they were dead wrong. The Dan Duquette Orioles were absolutely wrong in uh, thinking either of those things. And the holes uh, in, on the roster in trying to replace those guys at that time. Really, they made some bad trades that cost the Orioles pitching prospects who might have kept the starting rotation from falling into oblivion. And it was bad. So, you know, I, I don't want the Mike Elias Orioles to end up in similar situations. So, like, I mean, I don't know. Uh, the trading arbit- players in their arbitration years, it makes me grumpy to think about it. You know, if it's going to end up being key players until they hit free agency, and then you say, thank you, good luck getting paid. Uh, I mean, that's sad because the ceiling is six years with everybody, right? Six years is a lot of years, but at the same time, you know, you don't get anybody who becomes a decade-long or the next career-long Oriole who's just, you know, becomes a Baltimore lifer and everybody just has good memories of them, you know, for the next 50 years, and everybody's talking about so-and-so player, right? Uh, you, you don't get that if they're gone after six years. But, I mean, I could live with that relative to um, trading people after four or five years. But for me, I feel like the worst-case scenario isn't even so much about the players not getting signed to extensions. I feel like right now maybe the worst-case scenario is if current prospect assumptions about who can replace some regulars after the 2025 season, which by then uh, the following will be free agents, Anthony Santander, Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, and John Means, among others. Those are the the key four. If, If the prospects to replace those guys don't pan out, I mean, that's a whole outfield that's gone. So like, if you don't get a, an outfield out of Colton Kowser, Heston Kerstad, maybe one of Dylan Beavers or Judd Fabian or even Enrique Bradfield Jr. maybe being ready by this time. Like if, if you don't have a big league outfield by then, then what, you know? And if your internal starting pitcher options cannot replace means after next year or even sometime next year if means doesn't bounce back from the Tommy John surgery or you know even Kyle Gibson in who's going to become a free agent like if you can't replace those guys in quality then where are you you are up the creek without a paddle and separately to that I feel like the Orioles want to try to win while all of Adley Rutschman Gunnar Henderson and Jackson Holiday are here so that's going to be 2024, 2025, 
maybe 2026, because I think if the Orioles end up in this pessimistic worst case scenario of following the Rays model and Adley Rutschman, quote unquote, gets too expensive in like 2026 or 2027, maybe at that time, uh, the Orioles have advanced to saying, you know what, we'll have Samuel Basayo come up and step in. Creed Willems, whatever. Uh, nonetheless, if they just trade Adley in this scenario, I think that's another bad scenario. And so I, all of these put together, I think you're putting to right now through 2025 or maybe 2026 as the window. And so obviously the Orioles did not choose to push all in for the 2023 season, either with their offseason moves where they did a relatively non-existent ceiling and not particularly high floor signing of Kyle Gibson and then trading for Cole Irvin, which thus far has not worked out too great overall results. And then at the trade deadline, what did they do? They went out and got Shintaro Fujinami and Jack Flaherty. So far, neither of these is looking like the difference maker either. So that said, if the opportunity presents itself, I think over the next two seasons, whether it's an off-season trade to add somebody for maybe a year, maybe two years, whether it's a mid-season trade to add somebody for you know a short-term rental or like a one-and-a-half-year rental. I, I hope the Orioles will be more aggressive in um, fortifying the 2024 and 2025 rosters because things are very good this year with the guys they've got, but we cannot count on those guys being repeating on being as good as they were. I think some you can, but others less so. And in any case, within a couple of years, several of the key players this year are going to be free agents. So, you you know, the Orioles cannot just assume that's going to stay forever. So I hope they will be aggressive um, before the end of the 2025 season. I, I feel like in the worst case scenario, if Elias's vaunted talent pipeline does not uh, does not end up producing in the long run the way we're currently all wanting him to, then that's what's going to have to happen if the Orioles are going to make something good happen. And that's the worst case scenario. I, I'm reasonably optimistic over the medium term future of the Orioles, but you know, I mean, again, this this Angelo stuff putting a cloud of the Orioles are never going to sign a player whose contract is $150 million or whatever. Like, it puts some dark thoughts out there that would have been a lot better if he had just not talked to the New York Times. It's all he had to do is shut up, and he can't. So I don't know. But thank you to Nava and Seth for writing in. If you have a question or topic that you would like to have answered on a future episode of this show, you can email camdencastpod at gmail.com. That's all that I've got for today. If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a rating or review and tell an Orioles fan in your life about the show. New episodes will be out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning, so I will be back with you on Friday, hopefully with at least one better game against the Blue Jays to talk about at least one win, I should say. And in between now and then, you can leave a comment on camdenchat.com. You'll find me there under the comments with the name Eat More SK. Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. Until next time, go O's!